Welcome to the Blind Buy Podcast. We're going to begin this week's episode with a short poem that has been submitted to us by French actor Juliette Binoche. This poem is called The Priest. The priest has broken free from the paddock. The steam of freedom careers from his leathery nostrils. His hooves stamp a sad beat on the cold October lawn. We feel the thuds in our chests. There is a mass to be said. But the priest has broken free from the paddock and is running towards the lake. Thank you very much, Juliet Benash. I loved you in The English Patient. If you're a brand new listener to this podcast, maybe you could start with this episode. I've got a, I've got a very special treat this episode, a very special treat. If you don't want to, go back to some earlier episodes. There's lots of episodes to listen to. Regular listeners, we've got a special treat. I'm speaking to Graham Norton this week. Graham is the biggest TV presenter in the UK and Ireland, without a doubt. He's also an author. And he's on this week to speak about his brand new book, which is called Home Stretch. And you can pre-order it right now. It's his third book. And fair play to Graham for coming onto this podcast because, like I said, he's massive. He's absolutely huge. Um, so for Graham to come on here and to give me a full chat is very humbling and very nice and very sound of him because he's in big demand and, you know, there would have been a lot of competition from large radio shows, all shit like that. This is a podcast that's run from a fucking essentially a bedroom in Limerick where I still speak into a sock as a microphone. So fair play to Graham. Before I get into the interview, have I got anything to plug? Look, I haven't had fucking gigs in a long time because of coronavirus, as you know. I won't have gigs for a very long time. But I got offered an online podcast festival. There's an online podcast festival called the Unmute Podcast Festival. And they said to me, Will you do an online podcast gig? So I said, fuck it, yeah. What have I got to lose? Why not? Let's do it. See what it's like. So on the 22nd of October, I'm doing an online live podcast where I speak to a guest and it's exclusive. So if you want to get a ticket for that, just go to the unmutepodcastfestival.com and look for the Blind Boy podcast and you can buy a ticket to see a live online podcast. I know it's going to be crack. I've never done one before. But why the fuck not? So if you're interested in that, get an old ticket. Here's the interview with Graham Norton. It's... I just wanted a chat. Listen, this is... The whole point of a fucking podcast and what makes it different from traditional media is... It's not an interview. It is an interview... But it's, it's, you want to create the, the intimacy of a fucking kitchen. That's what you want. It's an interview, but you leave space for the conversation to go where it needs to go. And it's a nice long interview. It's, it's 90 minutes long. So if you're listening to it, you can get two days out of this podcast if you like. Pause it, listen to the rest later. And I'm very happy with how I recorded it. I'm after sorting my shit out with recording podcasts over long distance. So, 
Graham is actually in London. I'm in Limerick. But to be honest, it sounds like we're sitting in the same room because I got my shit together with how I record long-distance podcasts. It's, it's, it's better audio fidelity than the one I did with Sami Zayn, which I was really happy with, and I recorded that over Zoom. But I used a new method this time, and the, the chat with Graham is better audio fidelity. It's closer to the, the podcast hug. Um, I have a feeling Sammy will be back on at some point. I have a feeling me and Sammy are going to have another chat again. And when we do, I'll use this method to record it. But here you go. Here's the chat I had with Graham Norton. Um, a talented, funny and generous person. So, Graham, um, what is the crack, first of all? How are you? I'm very well. Uh, how are you? I'm good. I'm, I'm getting used to... Sure, look, man, it's, we're six months into it now, so it, it does feel normal. And I'm lucky that I just I have the type of job where I can work from home. So I'm just reminding myself each day to be thankful of that, you know, because some of my friends don't have that. They're they have to work in shops and shit like that. So I, no. I don't allow myself to complain. Yeah, no, I must say talking to people who uh, are put on furlough or are freelancers and stuff like it's not just the financial thing. It's just they've got so much time. And like time yeah. is a bad thing. Too much time is is really, yeah, it's, it's, that must be hard. So, and also I think the other thing is because what we do was never nine to five. It was never routine. So we're used to being in our house at kind of weird times of the day and for extended periods so. of time. Yeah. So it, it, it really doesn't feel that different for me. I mean, I miss gigs. I miss gigs and I miss connecting with people at gigs. But other than that, I've spent my life writing, being on my own, spending huge amounts of time on my own at the expense of, of kind of social things just to do my art. Yeah. And um, the one thing I want to start, that, and one thing that I really want to ask you and that I'm really curious about with yourself, right? And it's kind of, it's a parallel between myself and yourself. You write serious fiction. You write actual serious fiction. Um, but you come from a background of being an entertainer and a, win, a well-known face. I'm in a similar situation. I'm obviously not as well known, but I also write serious fiction. It's kind of being promoted off the back of my, my pre-existing image. But how do you find... Okay, for me personally, I, I do find it difficult to get received critically as someone who... It's like all of a sudden, oh, he's writing books now. The lad with the bag is writing books. <laughs> how, how You've written three books now. You've written um, A Keeper Home Stretch and holding yeah right like how did you did you find resistance first off did, did people go what the fuck you mean he's writing a book of fiction um well look there's that uh and also well two things one is what's good is that the bar is very low probably not with you i think people thought you'd be able to write fiction i think they knew you'd be able to write fiction um and see i find I find the disconnect between you, the comic, mm -hmm. and you, the writer, smaller than the disconnect between me as shiny-faced fool on television and and a writer. I think the disconnect is smaller. I, I didn't... When I read your book, I kind of thought, yeah, this is the book that man would write. It didn't... It, I didn't think it was that... Uh, that jarring that it was that it was you, the man in the plastic mm -hmm. bag, was writing that book. I thought I thought 
it, it, it made sense to me. I could, I could hear your voice in that book. Um, I think it's hard. Look, I made a choice, didn't I? I made a choice years ago to go down a particular route. And so I can't really complain now that I'm not taken as seriously as a writer as I'd like to be, because if I'd wanted that, if I'd wanted, well, if I'd wanted that respect, I'd have been a writer. That's what I'd have done all those years ago, uh, you know, instead of scrabbling around comedy clubs and Beasting and living together, doing that. I'd have been doing bits of journalism and and writing short stories and all of that. And I and I I didn't do that. The kind of the the showing off gene was stronger <laughs> than the writing gene. Well, that's one thing though. When I found myself kind of defending your writing in in just in social circles, if anyone said, "What the fuck do you mean he's writing a book?" <laughs> I'd I'd get angry because the thing is, is that like. I, you started off in doing Edinburgh shows, right? So you started off essentially your writing, your comedy, being up on stage, responding to an audience, all of these things. That's writing. That's creativity. So I was saying, well, why the fuck shouldn't he write a book? Didn't Doesn't he have a career in comedy behind him? Doesn't he have all these things that have prepped him to do it? Why, why is it so strange that all of a sudden, what's the difference between a page and an act on stage? It's still taking something from your mind and creating something outside of yourself that people engage with, you know? Well, especially when I started. When I started up in Edinburgh, I was doing, like, comedy characters and stuff, and I was doing these monologues, and it was really written. Yeah. I mean, like, if if the if I'd been heckled, I don't know what I'd have done, you know? because oh, I was shit. I was such a kind of... I was such an actor trying to kind of get into comedy. And and it took me... And that, that was when, you know, I, no... It was difficult because I wasn't a stand-up. And people don't really know what to do with you if you're not a stand-up. But you're not, you know, but yet you are a funny person. You are doing funny things and you're doing an hour in Edinburgh and people like it. But actually, there's no career there. You like, you might do Edinburgh, you might do the Brighton Festival, you might do Dublin Theatre Festival, but that's it. Uh, Or Kilkenny, you might do Cat Laughs or something, yeah. Tell us about, so the, the... When you started in Edinburgh with the the Mother Teresa character, are you saying that like you had strict monologues and you didn't deviate from that monologue like that? Was there room for improv? Because Edinburgh's nuts. Yeah, people no, will heckle you. You have yeah, to no, expect no. to be heckled. Mother Teresa, she was able to talk to people. Uh, okay. and, and she would interact with the crowd and there were stupid competitions and stuff like that. Um, I think it was... Tell us about the other... What were you doing? What other stuff were you doing? I did a show called... Uh, what do I, there was one called Charlie's Angels Go to Hell, and that was a proper monologue. That was kind of about me in America, and it was kind of you know all of that. And uh, was it about Graham? It, it was yes, it was about me. It was kind of it was autobiographical, but it was like a little one man play type thing. Wow! And then I did uh, oh that's a, I did the Karen Carpenter Bar and Grill. Um, and that was, uh, <laughs> it was it was a different time. It was a different time. <laughs> What year are we talking here? <laughs> a long time ago. That would have been 19... Oh, when would that have been? Like mid-90s, 94 wow. or 95, something like that. And and wow. that, again, that was all... Um, uh, that was all just monologues to uh, the audience. And it had a kind of story. But, but, I mean, with Edinburgh, you've got to put in the title of your show in yeah. January or something. So you haven't written it, but you just kind of think, I want, an, I want a, a show oh, wow. name that stands out. So, you know, Mother Teresa of Calcutta, 
that stands out. Uh, Charlie Saints go to hell. Karen Carpenter Burger on grill. And so you wanted the names that, that kind of people would notice in the program. But Did then, you of ever, course, you've got to write it. You've got to write a show that has got something to do with Karen Carpenter oh, or Charlie's angels. Yeah, that was going to be my question, man. Like, that, that, you know, that's a tough one. It is tough. <laughs> uh, when I, I did Graham Norton and his amazing hostess trolley, and I just, I realised I'd not, I thought, surely I've got something funny to say about it. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I just, I kind of pretended that the, the show, like, I was, I had a hostess trolley in the poster. <laughs> and uh, yeah, I just pretended <laughs> that it didn't exist. I just, I can't remember. I just, How did you work Karen Carpenter into the, into the Karen Carpenter's bar and grill? How did you work her bar and grill into it? Um, now, I I remember... <laughs> I remember the climax was um, a, a spaceship that looked like a Frey Bentos uh, steak kidney pie tin came down and I, she went away. She was taken away in in that. That's the only bit of the story I remember. But, uh, yeah, it did. I, I have it. I'm, it's in the house somewhere. It, but it had a, it did have a structure. It did have a story. How does it feel? Sometimes one of the things that freaks me about out about Edinburgh is I think back to doing a show every single fucking night for 30 nights, sometimes two times a day, and I literally can't remember what I did. I can't remember what I did on stage for, for, for that long. What what the fuck? Are you the same? Like, can you not... Re- You're talking about entire monologues. Oh, and yeah, they're gone. Really remembering they're, what they were about. Yeah, they're entirely gone. I mean, there's, I have little images, I have little snippets of things that I remember. Um, but uh, But that's all. Um, and the, and there's certain shows you remember for all you know because what's nice about Edinburgh is it's such a small audience you know certainly the venues I was playing it was always like a hundred people tops mm-hmm. and what's nice about that audience is that you can take them in lots of weird places you know like odd things can happen and and. Yeah, and and you don't lose the audience. There's a kind of a trust, yes, uh, it, with that audience because they're so small, and you're all in this room, and it's kind of what Edinburgh's about. Yes, um, and I remember i I used to do I used to do this stupid thing just to fill time, uh, and it was a, a question. It was a, an interview uh, with an, an audience member became a guest. This was before I had a chat show, and but an audience member would become a guest. And, you know, and it was just, I got the names. I think I got the names from the tickets or something or the credit card receipts. I'm sure it was all data that's breach. What, that's what uh, those, um, those those scammers do. Not not scammers, the, um, the not hypnotists. Oh, what the, are they the, called? The psychics. Psychics, that's what they do. Oh, is that they where they get, get the names? Na- they get the names from the tickets, then they do a load of research. And then all of a sudden, the person is surprised that they know this information that's coming from a dead relative. So you were doing you were doing that game without even knowing it. Without even knowing it, <laughs> I'd call out the name, and they'd come down, and I'd give them a choice between oh, I could topical questions and personal questions, and then both envelopes ended up having the personal questions in it, so they had to answer oh, these personal good. questions. So anyway, uh, and it was fine, it was funny, and da da da. da. And there's one afternoon, I called out the name, and it's a small room. This guy put up his hand, and he was clearly really ill. He was sick. He was sort of yeah. emaciated, grey, da, da, da. And I kind of thought, God, is he going to be able to get down here? But he did. He got onto the stage and he sat in the chair opposite me. And the last question on this questionnaire was, um, it was, 
Oh, you can have sex with anyone you like. Right? You can have sex yeah. with anyone you like. But it's the last time you'll ever have sex. Uh, who would it be? Right? And normally, you know, it's a funny question because maybe their partner's in the audience and they're, they're feeling pressure. I ought to say them. But really, I'd like it to be, you know, Angelina Jolie or I'd like it to be George Clooney or something. Mm-hmm. And with this guy, it suddenly this suddenly became an incredibly dark, serious, profound question. Oh, my God. Because you kind of thought, well, you're not long for this world. This, oh, this is a sort of a true question. And and there was nothing funny. But... But I, but I remember it because it was a kind of such a special moment. And I loved the audience in that moment. And I loved him as well. Was there compassion? Was there, oh, was there a total. sense of compassion Everyone in the room? was just, everyone, okay. everyone wanted to hear his answer. And his answer was, uh, it was a, a, I think it was his first boyfriend who now lived in Australia. That was who mm-hmm. he wanted to be with. Did you get a sense that you'd this person who who is looking at their own mortality or who who doesn't know how long they have left, that you would ask them a question that they themselves hadn't really considered and it was a big existential moment for them. I think it was a... What was nice was he wasn't glib about it. He... Mm -hmm. His answer was sincere. You know, because it's a... It's you know, it's a hypothetical, stupid pub drinking game question. But for him, it wasn't. For him, it was like, actually... I'd love to see that guy again. I'd like to be with that man mm-hmm. one more time and then, you know, whatever. Um, and and that's the magic for me. That was the magic of Edinburgh. Yeah. That all, all those kind of crazy things would happen. Um, and and everyone, there's kind of a pact <laughs> that you're all in this funny little hot, sweaty room and, and yeah. you, those things can happen. Do you ever find yourself trying to chase that on television? How do you feel uh, television... Like, do, do you miss that or do you feel that in, in, in a TV setting you can achieve that? It's essentially what we're talking about is intimacy. It's a contract of intimacy yeah, and, with an audience and with a room. And I think on telly, certainly on my show on telly, that's really, really hard. I think on the radio, you can achieve it. Mm-hmm. Um, it where I think people feel... What's the difference between the two there, do you well, think? Because one, you can't see the audience. You can kind of forget about the audience on the radio. Yeah. You know, it feels like two people in a room. Yeah. Um, I remember I... Um, uh, Mary Berry was on the, the show, uh, mm-hmm. on the radio show. And, you know, I, I have a stupid... You know, we chat on about cooking and blah, 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 blah. And, and then I say, oh, and you've chosen a record. What have you chosen and Why? And Mary Berry looked at me and uh, she'd chosen Sailing by Rod Stewart. That was her choice. And I said, and why did you choose this? And she went, I had a son. And suddenly her eyes were filled with tears. And suddenly I was just a big... And it was the thing that her son had died, you know, decades earlier. And I think she thought... She was fine. I think she thought, oh, I can say this. I, I, you know, I won't, this won't move me. This won't uh, upset me. But I think it was somehow saying it out loud in, fr- in front of someone, me, who I didn't know any of her family history. Yeah. Uh, suddenly it hit her and, and it was all. Oh. And it, that's the sort of moment, you know, you couldn't have on the TV show. No. And if, in fact, if you did, I think we've had one guest who cried on the television. It was John mm-hmm. Voigt. Uh, he moved himself. 
<laughs> with some story and we cut it out we didn't leave it in <laughs> you know and i th- see it's not a safe space that's the thing it, it, like it, with you and mary in a studio that's a safe space but in in a in a, a tv setting often it's not a safe space for raw emotion no and i think where and also it's very hard to come back from us you know, yeah. do you kind of go, well, I was going to talk to, uh, you know, Greg Davies yeah. about his tour, <laughs> but Fucking let's just hell. hold Mary Berry's hand for a while. And, you know, and at least on the radio, um, you know, we have this moment, but then we play a record and then that's all, you know, there's a kind of people accept there's a kind of a, a grammar that after the record, things will be different. We won't still yeah. be crying. <laughs> And the power of music as well, the power, the power of music to create an emotional space. Yes, no, absolutely. Because, yes, and, you know, and it was Rod Stewart sailing and he loved boats and that's why she, and she, yeah. you know, and it was, I, it was so sweet that she thought this was going to be lovely. Oh, great. Well, I love that song because it reminds yeah. me of my son. And, and just, it, it overwhelmed her. Um. What I'd like to know about as well is, so some of the questions I'm asking, they came from the internet. I asked people on Instagram what to ask you. Oh, yeah. But I'd, I, I'd, I don't I'd follow you on Instagram. In I think of you as a Twitter boy, but are you in, are you big on... I just, Asher, I have to do the whole oh, shebang. Okay, okay. I, I, I prefer Twitter. Twitter's better crack. Um, I, don't, I don't know. Instagram's nicer though. Oh. People aren't pricks on Instagram, but people are pricks yeah, on Twitter. No, Instagram is, I don't know what it is, but I think because people know you're not going to read it. <laughs> Whereas on Twitter, yeah. they know you'll see it. That's it. That's it. Yeah. Um, so one of the questions I got asked was, was to, to ask you about your time in a commune in San Francisco when you were younger. And but what I'd like to know is, is in the context of that, but also how do you go from being a young lad in West Cork to all of a sudden knowing that it's like, I want to be on a fucking stage. I want to be on Edinburgh. And was what happened in San Francisco an influence in that? It was. Uh, San, those, those hippies were amazing. They were so good for me. You know, I was 20. Was it the, the 80s? It would have been the 80s, 83, 84, around then. And what type of hippies, like, it, so the hippies in the 80s, were, were they older hippies? Was hippies still a thing that was happening in San Francisco? It was. What? Hippies is still a thing that's happening in San Francisco. There are, oh, really? yeah, there are hippie retirement homes now. Um, oh, wow. It, so that, you know, they can talk, you know, that they speak to their own people. So they're not stuck in a in a retirement home sitting next to a Trump mm-hmm. supporter. They're in mm-hmm. a, a lovely hippie retirement company, you know, and they're, it, it'll all be eco and vegan and mm-hmm. you know it's it's they've done it well they've done it well but back then we were uh in this hippie it was called star dance the hippie commune and they, like how do, how do you get like just for me there, there's no internet there's nothing what how do you you just get on a plane did you decide you were going to join the hippies back in Cork? No. Or did you get to America? It was all, like, all I, accidental. I was going to see, I, this, this was, this makes me sound older. This makes me sound like a character from Jane Austen. But I had, <laughs> I had these pen pals. And I. Oh, fucking I hell. Know. Oh my God. <laughs> Do you remember? Wow. Remember them. Um, and uh, I, you know, I, I, from everywhere, you signed up with an agent. I think you signed up with an agency. How do you get a pen pal? Like, how, how does that? You, there was an agency and you signed, you wrote away, you sent it, you pay, paid some money and you sent in your address and then you started getting letters from all but, over the world. Half of them you couldn't understand because they were in such bad English. But, uh, and you try and write well, back. Did you advertise yourself? Did you say, my name is Graham, I listen to this music, I like these books? No, 
or was it just I think it was, hit I think it was more random than that. I think maybe it started in school, you know. I think it might have been a school thing. Because I'm thinking now I wouldn't have paid money. So I think I yeah. think it was something to do with schools. And ah, it was some sort of pen okay. pal thing like that. Anyway, I ended up uh, pen pal with this guy called David Filipando. Isn't that a great name? Fantastic um, name. David Filipando. And he was in L.A., so my big running away scheme was I was going to go and see David Villapando in L.A. So I get the J-1 visa. I get to New York. Uh, New York, terrifying. I couldn't, you know, I just had to get out of there. But um, New York was scary in the 80s, too, it wasn't was, it? it? And was also I'd seen, I'd seen a lot of, um, what was that? The, the Equalizer. I remember the Equalizer with your man, Edward Woodward. And I do not know, but what was the crack with that? It was just, it was a lot of people being shot in wet, dark streets in New York. (laughs) And and I'd seen too many episodes. So, and, and also like when we got to, when we got there as kids, um, we stayed in, uh, like a YMCA or something in, in um, New York. Was this in like Manhattan? Yeah, it was in Manhattan. Um, like, and Manhattan was very hardcore back then. That was, that was. Dodgy. It was, but it was exciting too. I remember we came through the Midtown Tunnel and, you know, and we were all like, we were pathetic, all these little Irish kids pressed against the glass, like looking at the big cars. And yeah. and then we came through the Midtown Tunnel out into those big glass canyons. And I remember uh, the bus driver came on the mic and went, welcome to the Big Apple. And we were like, Yay! <laughs> And then they took us the they took us to the YMCA, and then the next morning, uh, they gave us a talk, and I don't know what the talk was called. I think it was you know a, a, a whatever orienteering or something like that. But uh, yeah. but I said it could have been called how not to get killed in New York, and they oh scared the shit out of us. We were, <laughs> we were, and I still do these things. So you never look up. Don't look up. Um, you walk by the curb, not by the wall. Oh my god! And you, if you have to look at a map, go into a shop. Never look at a map on the street. Don't advertise that you're a exactly. tourist or that yeah. you're. Wow. And and weirdly, I still do all of that. It's 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 kind of ingrained in me now. Uh, and you know, if I'm with someone in New York and they start looking up at the buildings, I'm thinking you're going to be killed. Stop it! <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to shoot you in the head. <laughs> so how do you go from there then to meeting this David Philippando? Well, the, I had a seven day Rambler ticket for the bus, for Trailways bus. Okay. You went on a bus, a bus from New York all the way across the country? I had with me, and it was going to last me a month, I had £200, right? £50 a week. And because I, I thought that's more than I was living on in Cork. Um, yeah. So I thought, oh, sure, I'd be grand. My parents waved me off. They knew that I had 200 pounds and I was going to America. Like, it was madness. So uh, off I go, get on the bus, trailways. Uh, but of course, because I was kind of, you know, pretentious little git, um, I mm-hmm. I thought I won't get a map. I won't be tied down. <laughs> I won't be tied down. Oh my I won't God. be tied down by maps. So I would just look for the leaflets in the bus stations that were going, like that were like a straight line across rather than a straight line up and down and i thought well that's me heading west anyway that's not a very good way <laughs> to, and, to find and a way across. what type of young fella were you graham like what music were you listening to what what visions did you have who did you want to be who did you think you were um, who did i think i was i don't know i mean i wanted to be i i i think i wanted to be an actor but then but then i thought i couldn't be an actor because i didn't know how you did that i just didn't know how mm-hmm. you did that 
Um, so I think mostly I was looking for adventure, I suppose, or mm-hmm. just, I, I, I mean, I wanted to get away and this seemed like as far away as I could get. And it was, you know, it was like, um, so much of it was like a movie. Like I remember I didn't have a Walkman or anything, but I remember being on the bus and, uh, we, the guy beside me had a Walkman and bless him. He said, mm-hmm. Oh, do you want to listen to some music and he gave me the headphones for a little bit and, wow. and I remember I put the headphones on and it was the you know the song from Midnight Cowboy uh, everybody's talking everybody's yeah. talking oh my god and it was just you're suddenly you were in a film you know and I was going across but, a bridge wow. across some big anonymous river in uh, somewhere in the middle of America and you're really lucky with that man because the thing is you got to go to America at a time when you could genuinely experience culture shock. Like kids nowadays can't experience, like there's two, you can just look at all of America right now on the internet. Like we're aware that America is a a horrible place in parts. We know about it all, but you got to go to America with this, the vision that had just been sold to you by Hollywood and to experience it that way. And also to discover that every bus station in America is in a shithole. Like, yeah. <laughs> no bus station is, is a nice bit of town. They're always in the worst bit of town. So, like, you're literally stepping over people when you are, <laughs> it doesn't matter where you wow. arrive, that it's just terrible. Um, and, 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 and like, but what was good was, you know, I had that kind of fearlessness of youth as well. So I probably wasn't yeah. as scared as I should have been. Uh, yeah, the, the naivety, the wonderful naivety that can actually serve you well. Yeah. Oh, no, I mean, and yeah. and it's great so long as you survive. You know, that's why I'd hate to be a parent because mm-hmm. you'd be so oh, yeah, terrified yeah. every time your child left the house because you'd remember all the incredibly stupid things you did uh, when mm-hmm. you left the house. But anyway, what the, the long and the short of it was the bus ticket, the seven-day Rambler ticket, it ran out in San Francisco. So I never get, I never met David Bilbanda. I never. Oh, no. uh, wow. I know. Did you write to him and say, sorry for not meeting you? Um, do you know what? I just, I just got, I was ignoring. And then my mother, you know, you do these um, long distance calls and because it was so expensive, you'd basically like, mm-hmm. you'd, you'd call home and go, hello, and then hang up. And just so they knew you were alive. But I remember my mother must have written to me. and maybe she said it on the phone that this guy, some guy called David Villapando was calling the house because, uh, of course, he thought I was dead. Um, oh and, my god! Uh, <laughs> I was one of the bodies you were stepping over, getting out of the bus station, and uh, so uh, I did call David Vilpando and say, "Look, I'm in San Francisco, and I'll try and get down to um, what you call it, but uh, to mm-hmm. LA." But anyway, it wasn't going to happen. Um, and then I had a phone number for someone in San Francisco. I had one phone number for someone in San Francisco that someone had given me back in Ireland. And I and did you know this person? No, no, never met them. Just like here, here's an Irish person. He's, here's someone who's been recommended as sound. Yeah, no, she, I'm yeah, just gonna ring him no, up. No, she wasn't even I. She wasn't even Irish. It was she was in a, some perfectly nice American woman living her life, and suddenly got a phone call from me, and and you know she couldn't help me, but she knew someone, and she said, "Look, call these people. Maybe they'll be able to help you." Da, da, da. Anyway, a few phone calls on. I got a room for the night in this hippie commune and I was just paying nightly to rent this room and then uh, I think they are they said look do you want to stay 
And so I said, yeah, I, I would. And what were the conditions of, of staying? Like, is it like I, a commune? You don't have to pay rent, but you're expected to no, do no, you did have, washing you, up. Or a bit. You did have to pay rent. You did have to pay rent. It was very, it, okay. compared to everyone else, it was really cheap rent, but you did have to pay. Yeah. And, you know, there were all those classic things. There was a chore wheel where, you know, you had to clean bits of the house and you had to cook a couple of nights a week. You can imagine how much they dreaded when the 20 year old from Ireland was cooking. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because <laughs> I didn't know how to make anything. Though I went to the reunion, I went back. Oh my god! When? How long oh, ago? Like uh, I was actually, it's quite a long time ago now. I suppose about fifteen years ago, something like that. Yeah. I went back, and um, and some of them are still there. Some of them are still in the house, but lots of them had come back for this party, this reunion. And this woman said, "Oh, I still make your soup." I was like, "What?" <laughs> What was the fucking soup? Some sort of potato and leek thing that I made. But I, I had no um, recollection of making this soup. And were you? Did you? Were you pulling this soup out of your arse, <laughs> or did you have like? Did you? Did you know like? I must have. Somebody must have told me how to make this soup. But also, even now, have they ascribed some type of type of ancient myth, <laughs> mythological Irish meaning to this soup that you just brought over that you just yeah. fucking invented yeah, some on the sort fly? Of traditional recipe, and it's just like me. Yeah, <laughs> just this comes from West Cork <laughs> and the west of Ireland. It was handed down from Coolcullen <laughs> over in fucking San Francisco. <laughs> So they, they, and like uh, and I and even now though I find it very hard to make to make small amounts of food. I over cater all the time because I, I when I learned how to cook it was in vast pots of food. Yeah, and and that's where I met. That was the first time I met tofu. Uh, wow. Yeah, there's not a lot of tofu in fucking Ireland. In the no, 80s, there no. really wasn't, and and also it was disgusting. I mean, tofu now is yeah. quite nice, and they put flavors in it. Yeah, stuff. it's quite firm. But back then, it was just gelatinous glop, um, and we'd have that, and mostly vegetarian food. And then you sat on these cushions around these big um, electricity spools. You know those big wooden table mm-hmm. spool things. There were two of them together, and they formed the infinity table. So there was no head of the table or any of that. You just all oh, sat wow. around. And there was quite a few house meetings involved. And, you know, there was, uh, on a Sunday night, you could go to this barefoot boogie where people, you know, all left their shoes in a pile and you dance barefoot. It, but in like a, some community hall somewhere. <laughs> were these people the same age as you? No, were they older? Much older. They were in... And were you the only young person? There was a kid... There was a kid called Mindy and mm-hmm. and what was fascinating about her was so so the, all the hippies, blah, blah, blah. And then me sort of pretending to be a hippie. Uh, and then there was Mindy and Mindy had no interest in being a hippie. She was going to a school. And so her room was like this weird window into mainstream commercial America. You opened her room and it was just full of Barbies and rainbows and, you know, pink dolls houses. And yeah, and <laughs> you could tell that kind of the mother was sort of embarrassed. That she, It was like a cuckoo in the nest, some sort of capitalist cuckoo yeah. in, in the room. Uh, but now she's she's not that she has. I think she's followed her mother and she's grown into a kind of into a, a the irony of that. I know. Weird that children, that all children rebel. 
that's the that's yeah. The, yeah. But then they then they return to the values they're brought up with at their earliest life. Yeah, I guess generally. so. Yeah, well, also decent values. It wasn't like you know. The, yeah, the, you, you you would. But I remember that that. Well, do you know what, man? Fucking everyone making soup for each other and having this sharing communal lifestyle is a lot healthier than the ultra capitalism of Barbie. <laughs> Yes, it's a lot healthier. But she, but at the same time, she needed it. You know, I suppose. She, I, yeah. And even, in, and you would think in somewhere in San Francisco, like at school, she'd have found her tribe, you know, the other mm-hmm. hippie children. But I suppose it was kind of, you know, the mid 80s. So I guess it wasn't a great time for hippies. They were, they were, they were on the wane. So uh, mm-hmm. I guess she, she wanted to, you know, she wanted the pink bobbles in her hair and all, all of that. Um but the the mother did, did that experience. What did it do for your for your? Uh, f- what did it do for your confidence? And again, what I'm trying to get at here is like the point in your life where, and I had it myself, where you go, "Fuck it, I could go onto a stage." Do you know what yeah. I mean? That point where you go, "Do you know what? I think I could chance going up onto that stage." And it, it's it's a strange transition to make. But did you have a did you have a did you have a person or did you have a moment? What was it for you? Um, do you know what it was? It, it was, so the, the other rubber, so when I used to be in a thing called the, the rubber yeah, no, band, yeah. you're familiar yeah. with that, but like I was in school, I was 16 and often like I, I did have a lot of support at home with my creativity, but the thing is at home, it was, it was either music or painting. It was quite a narrow definition of art, right? Yeah. And comedy didn't fall into that. Comedy and performing didn't form it, for, uh, come into that. So when I was in school, what I was doing, which when I was kind of messing in class or doing funny voices and making people in the class laugh, okay, I thought that was me misbehaving. And I was being informed by the teachers that that was me misbehaving. Now as an adult, I look back and I go, no, 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 I was training myself for the stage. When I was in class making people laugh, that's me responding to an audience. Everything I, I learned that I was doing on the stage in Edinburgh and all this stuff, that came from the classroom. And Mr. Chrome, the other rubber bandit, he came from a family where things like musicals and performing were valued in his family. And he was the first person to say to me, no, you're creative. What, what you're doing is you're not messing. You're not creating trouble. What you're doing is actually creativity. And that's what made me realize, oh, fuck. When I make everybody laugh, um, I know it's disrupting the class, but I'm exhibiting a talent of some description there. Yeah, it's learning. And it's that a, helped me. It's with, learning how to value it too, because it comes easily yes. to you. You think you, you think it doesn't it. matter. Yeah. You think you, yeah. and it's only as you get older you realize, oh, actually, the other kids in the class couldn't do it the way I could. Yes. The other kids weren't like this is a this is a, a this is a commodity. This talent. Um, yeah, because, you know, because it's just what you did. It was just your way of your coping mechanism, or whatever. You kind of don't think it's of any value. Um, and you see, yeah. I, I I see that uh, with actors and stuff where mm-hmm. at a read through, they're hilarious in the first read through. They're so funny and good. And you mm-hmm. kind of think, oh, aren't they lucky that they can just do this, you know, falling on their head? They can just do it. And of course, they then torture themselves trying to do something else or trying, you know, yeah. because they won't accept that the thing they did first was actually 
that's the best. That's that's as you, you know you yeah. have a you have an incredible talent. So just relax. You're great. Yeah. But they there is that mm-hmm. kind of weird thing where people don't accept it. They they don't value it. They've got to torture themselves. Did you try any performance in San Francisco? I did. I think I auditioned for a couple of things. Didn't get anything. Um, but I. But I, the the big thing that I got out of the the hippie commune was, and it sounds so. I mean, it is hippie. I was going to say it sounds so hippy dippy. It it should. It came from a hippie commune. Um, but it was that you know they were saying to me, uh, you know, what did I want to do? And I was saying, oh, I'd like to be an actor, and um, and. And I suppose I always thought, well, I, do, I don't know how to do that or, well, that's not something that I would do or sure, I'd, if I tried to do that, I'd probably fail. And they, in that kind of amazing kind of American way, were just like, well, if you want to be an actor, that's what you should do. You should follow that yeah. dream. And and I kind of thought, well, that's true because all the because I realised if I go to London and try to get into drama school and don't get in, then I think, th- then I th- can think again. But unless I yeah. do that, I'll never know if I could be an actor or not. And I remember to the the uh, the mother of the little capitalist cuckoo, uh, she was in, she'd come back to school to study to be a nurse. And she was, I think she was 40 years old. And I remember just thinking how tragic that anyone at 40 would try and start to do something like why would <laughs> why would you bother at 40 years old yeah. <laughs> starting a new career and i must have hopefully i didn't say it that bluntly but i i must have voiced that opinion to her in some way because i always remember her saying to me well look if i if i do this you know till i'm 60 i'll have been doing it for 20 years you know, in yeah. brackets, as long as you've been alive, <laughs> you little dick. Yeah. Um, and that was <laughs> and that was a really good thing at 20 to hear. You kind of think, oh, actually, God, you know, because all you you're in such a rush when you're young. And it was yeah. great to kind of go, God, actually, there's more time. There's a bit more time than I thought there was. Like that yeah. I could, you know, fuck around till I was 40 and <laughs> then start a career because, you know, mm-hmm. you're still going to be, I'd still be doing a job for 20 years, which is longer than I could imagine doing anything for. So it, it, it gave me kind of permission to go down some dead ends, you know, some cul-de-sacs and things, um, rather than kind of being on the fast track and, you know, knowing exactly what I wanted to do and, you know, with having life goals and things I had to reach, you kind of think, actually, the meandering approach is probably more fun, more interesting and and ultimately more rewarding because... Searching for failure. Yes. Yeah. Brilliant phrase. Looking for wh- where are my opportunities to fail here? That's a... And then recontextualizing because f- people... It's, it's a thing that I try and incorporate a lot. Failure is, is this thing that's seen as a negative. But if you're creative, if you're working in any creative field, you have to search for and embrace failure because it's the only way you progress and learn. So failure isn't a bad thing in the creative industry. It's just a way to, to develop yeah, it is. It's got to be about risk. There's got to be about some risk and some challenge. Otherwise, well, not only, well, the, the main thing that you'll just get very bored if if you live a life yeah. with no risk or challenge in it. Uh, that's yeah. a dull life. We're going to take a tiny little break from the interview there now to let you know that this podcast is supported by you, the listener. 
via the Patreon page, patreon.com forward slash the blind boy podcast. It's a 100% independent podcast. I'm not, in, I'm not in anyone's pocket. I get the occasional advertiser, but this is a 100% independent podcast. I have complete editorial control. I get to do whatever the fuck I want to speak about what I want and to listen to ye and to keep this a, com- a community-based thing. So all I'm asking is once a month, if you can afford it, give me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee um, because as well, this podcast is its my sole source of income. It's how I earn a living. Because of coronavirus, I can't do gigs. I can't really do any TV. I was probably going to be doing TV this year. They're not making TV. TV is also getting hammered by coronavirus. My book, my book of short stories came out. The paperback got released right in the middle of lockdown in March. So there's a big pile of fucking unsold books. So this podcast is my sole source of income. So if you're listening to it, you're enjoying it each week, you're taking something from it, just please consider giving me the price of a pint or the price of a cup of coffee once a month. That's it. If you're liking this, would you say to yourself, I'd buy him a pint? Well, please do. But if you can't afford it, don't worry. Don't worry. This is a model that's based on soundness and kindness. So if you can't afford it, then you can listen for free and someone else is paying for you. And I'm happy. I'm earning a living. And everyone is getting a podcast. But if you can't afford it, please do consider that. Patreon.com forward slash the blind buy podcast. Tiny little break right now for a digitally inserted advert. Acast, who hosts this podcast, they insert adverts into this podcast. So what I do, so you don't get a nasty surprise, I give you a little warning by playing a musical instrument. This week, we're going to play a guayro which is, it's a, I think it's a South, South American or a Latin American percussion instrument with a very interesting sound on it. So this is the guayro pause. So when you hear the guayro, don't be surprised if you get an advert for some bullshit. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. A lot can happen in 3 years, like a chatbot maybe your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. Beautiful instrument. You'll know that instrument from my Twitch stream. Um, I'm on Twitch twitch.tv forward slash the blind by podcast three times a week Wednesday, Thursday, Friday at around 8.30pm Irish time I come on I chat I play video games I'm writing a, a non-stop live musical two video games it's good crack you can come on you can chat with me come along to that back now to part two of the chat with Graham Norton where we get into a bit of celebrity gossip Graham gives me a bit of celebrity gossip yum yum so did you head back from San Francisco then and, and train in London 
with a bit of acting. Yeah, so I came back to I came back because I realized, you know, I couldn't live in America. Um because you know what was that just because of visa visa restrictions restri- or visa stuff. So I had to come back. So you did what? Like a year and a half in in uh San Francisco. Bit less than that. Just a bit over a year, I think. And then I actually one tiny thing before we oh, move yeah. on. Um the, the, when you were speaking there about um you know, the, being told by the people in San Francisco about uh, the the hippies about, you know, you can, if you want to be an actor, you pursue it. Did that give you any type of, how did that contrast to the support you would have received at home? Like, were, were your parents supportive of, of, if you said you wanted to be an actor, how does that fly in West Cork? Well, like, it couldn't fly. It, you know, well, certainly not in my family. You know, I think the idea was, if that's great, you like acting. And they, and, and they, they were supportive of my interest in it, like, my father used to drive me up to Cork to go to rehearsals for the Everyman. And, you know, yeah. they supported me as much as they knew how, you know. And your dad was like a Guinness yeah. rep, wasn't he? So, like, they they gave me all the support that they understood how to give. But if I said mm-hmm. I wanted to be a professional actor, like, they would, you know, the three of us would just look at each other blankly. <laughs> Because that wasn't a thing, you know, and and I don't understand why I was so kind of uh, paralyzed by it, because there were actors, you know what I mean? Like there was the Abbey and there was the Gate and there was RTE. Clearly there were Irish actors, but the only Irish actor I knew, kind of who knew someone I knew was um, Fiona Shaw. You know Fiona Shaw? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And she was from Cork. She'd been to UCC and she'd gone to London and she went to RADA. Boom. So okay, I kind yeah. of thought, so that is, so that's, the, she's left breadcrumbs for me. I will follow that. And uh, so that was the only thing I knew how to do. You went to London and you went to drama school and then you become an actor. So that was the route. So I did it. I went to London and I applied to drama school and I got in to Central. So, you know, following the hippie thing of, you know, follow your dream as far as you can. I, mm-hmm. you know, until you reach failure. Um, so I was being, I was finding success. You know, I got in um, and then I got an agent and then I got a couple of jobs. And that's when uh, the dream, <laughs> the dream sort of uh, hit. <laughs> sort of, I was sort of quietly steered into a lay-by and uh, the, yeah, it just stopped. Uh, I just didn't get any jobs really. I, I kind of a little flurry of activity early on and then that was the end of it. And that's how I kind of ended up writing my own stuff. Um, and, you know, how happy am I that I didn't end up being an actor? I'm delighted I'm not an actor. When did you start to feel like my first encounter with you was obviously on Father Ted, but like when did you start becoming really comfortable with presenting, with presenting a TV show? And because I remember your your first one, the very first, what was it called? It was on Channel 4? Carnal Knowledge. Yeah. Carnal Knowledge was on, weirdly that was ITV. That was, was it, ITV, it was when was ITV it? decided, right, we're going to, we're going to own Nighttime. And, uh. That's why I thought it was Channel 4. It was obviously ITV trying to compete with Channel 4 at yeah, the time. Yeah, so they, they, they do these late night shows. So Davina hosted one, what was it? Hers was called God's Gift. And that was mm-hmm. a dating show for men. 
Like, didn't men come on stage? And then all the women, I think, did the women all crowd around a man and that's how he won or something? I can't remember. But she had a really out there thing. And then we did Carnal Knowledge, which was produced by um, Rapido, who also made Euro Trash and things like that. Mm -hmm. And ours was like a filthy Mr. and Mrs. game show. Yeah. And, of course, we were, you know, back then... People didn't understand. So we signed a contract to do, I think there were 12 shows. Yeah. And, you know, because we all came from a traditional world, our agents were like, oh, okay. And then if it goes well, there'll be more shows. There'll yeah. be more shows. No, they will just show those 12 shows for, oh, for, for like f- about three years. <laughs> they just showed those 12 shows over and over and over again. But surely there was a benefit in that because it, at least it means if you're doing some type of live shit, it's it's effectively an advert. I suppose. It was just frustrating that you kind of think, oh, like, yeah, could we, you know, yeah. we didn't get paid to reflect the fact that it was being like flogged to death on the telly. Um, yeah, the problem with that then is someone then takes your image and they then decide how oversaturated you become. Well, there's that. And also the people think that's still who you are, you know. Three ah, years later, okay. I'm still there in an orange mohair jumper <laughs> going, this yeah. is blah, blah, blah. Uh, But that's where I'm, well, I knew Maria McCurlin before that, but she was kind of the main host and I was her sidekick. Mm-hmm. And, uh, oh, it was grim. Like the, you'd be huge fights in the car park afterwards and you'd be getting them to drink bottles of Bex at nine in the morning to relax. <laughs> oh my God. It was really, it was hardcore. <laughs> Everyone wants to know, like, who was the biggest, who's, who's been the biggest asshole ever on your show? Is that something you're okay to answer? Well, you know, the thing about assholes on the show is I'm always quite forgiving if they're an asshole. Yeah. Because I got to think, well, look, it's nobody's job. You know, nobody left school and kind of go, I'm going to be a chat show guest. Uh, you know, people are something else. They're actors, they're musicians, models, writers, whatever the hell they are. Yeah. So if they're awful on the show, I kind of think, well, okay, well, like, we'll never have you back. But I don't hate you yeah. because you were awful on the show. Um, weirdly, it's I am kind of spared the assholery mostly. It's really the next day when I'm talking to people in the office that I discover the assholery that went on. Ah. Um, Fucking classic. The, it's never always the case, man. It's the same with me. You meet someone and you think they're sound, but then you ask the assistants, you ask, and then it's like, no, this person's a prick. Yeah. They were nice to you, but they were a prick to the people who were underneath. Yeah, and, and also you often tell if they if they are surrounded by pricks, if they've got like a really horrible publicist, really horrible manager, you kind of think that's odd. Yeah, <laughs> and, then, and then you figure it out <laughs> that yeah. it's a pile of pricks, uh, mm-hmm. and they're just another one. The, I mean, I suppose for the 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 people backstage, they have a hard time. Like there was. One person, I won't say it was, and they already had nine dressing rooms. I mean, this sounds made up. This sounds like, how can that be true? How could one person need nine dressing rooms? They had nine dressing rooms. And, and you know, we did notice. We, it wasn't like, that, that doesn't happen every week. So we were kind of going, geez, they've got nine dressing rooms. And then uh, somebody came running into the production office, someone from that person's team, going, we have a 911 situation. And we were like, really? What is it? Oh, we need another dressing room. 
And so uh, Catherine, the line producer, she's very calm and she gets on the phone to get another dressing room. We'll get you another dressing room. And while she was waiting on the phone, she just went, oh, out of interest, why do you need another dressing room? And uh, they went, oh, they want to charge their mobile phone. And yeah, uh, yeah, and that's why they needed another dressing room. And and we were talking about it afterwards, kind of like, how does that happen? How do you get? Yeah, that's my my immediate question is I'm, I'm like, I don't need to know who the person is, but I'm going, what level of fame are they at? And how the fuck does that happen to a human well, being? See, I think it goes back to uh, the kind of Mariah Carey basket of puppies thing. You know, where mm-hmm. she's backstage, you know, the story about Mariah Carey, that you know, part of her rider was a basket of puppies yeah. that she would play with. Yeah. And and I think where that comes from, that comes from people making work for themselves, people making themselves indispensable. So mm-hmm. like, so Mariah oh. Carey is sat in a room and you go in and you go, how are you, Mariah? And she goes, I'm fine. Do you need anything? No. Would you not prefer this room if it was if okay. it was white? It's a really horrible color. Would you not prefer this room if it was white? So she goes, oh, I suppose it would be. It would look nicer white. Suddenly, Mariah Carey is demanding her her dressing room is okay. painted white. Uh, would Would you like some scented candles? I'd say I'd look. Would it be nicer with scented candles? Mariah Carey demands scented candles, and then suddenly you get to a point where somebody goes. Wouldn't you like some puppies? Wouldn't it be lovely to be rolling on the and floor? And now all of a sudden you've a, there's a new job is created called a puppy wrangler. <gasps> there you go. Yeah. So it's, you think it's a culture of essentially grifting a person who has a lot of money to create work. I think so. So like, so that person was going to charge the mobile phone and somebody kind of went, oh, now it might beep and you, you want to have a nap. So it might make some noise. Should, would it not be better if we, if we charge that in a separate room? Um, because that's the only explanation. Yeah, it's something in my career, like, like obviously I'm nowhere near that fucking level of fame, but it's still I go I go on stage and I do festivals and you have people who's res- who are responsible for your writer and stuff. And it's something I'm all, I've always battled with over the years, especially when working on TV. Now, one thing I learned is so when it comes to doing a gig and you do. When I want want a rider, I literally just want what I need. And what I need is some food, some beers, some water. That's it. But from an early stage, I was encouraged to be like, no, 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 you can't do that. And I'm like, why? Well, here's the thing with a rider. You need to put on the really weird thing. So my really weird thing on my rider is I need a hand-drawn image of Elvis Costello. (laughs) And every venue... Has to give me a hand-drawn image of Elvis Costello. What's that about? And what? So what I was told from the early stages of my performance is the rider that I get, my needs, my food, my water. That's not really. That's not really that important. But what is fucking important is the sound, the lights, all these things out there on stage. So what you do is you create a rider that has some curveballs in there, and by doing that, when I when I go to a dressing room. And I don't see Elvis Costello. Then I go, well, okay, Elvis Costello isn't here. What have they fucked up outstage? And then you go up to outstage and you see, ah, shit, they don't have monitors there for me. This is the wrong microphone. Now we have a real problem about how the show gets affected. So there is a culture of put weird shit in your rider because it lets you know the, the quality of the entire venue. If they don't read your personal rider, they're certainly not reading the really important technical rider. So... Once I heard that, I was like, okay, I'm okay now to have a little bit of weird shit. I don't feel like I'm 
abusing people or wasting their time. But one thing I will say, Graham, is, and it's a huge thing with me and my plastic bag and my anonymity, like mental health is, is hugely important to me and maintaining a, a healthy sense of self-esteem and a healthy sense of identity. And when I first started working on RTE and all of a sudden there's people who are employed as runners. So their job is to come up to me and say, would you like a chair? Would you like a cup of coffee? Now, I don't want someone doing yeah. this for me because I'm like, why the fuck should someone get me? I'm a, I'm a grown man. I don't need, I can get my own coffee. But then it's like, please, it's my job. I have to get you coffee. But then it's like, Charlie Brooker did a piece on this too. It's, you let someone get your chair, you let someone get you a coffee. And then two weeks later, you're going, where the fuck is my coffee? And then I have to mind myself around that because I'm going, am I now becoming a prick? You know what I mean? And it's one of the things that my, my bag protects me because I know what it's like. If I'm in Ireland and I, I, I can walk into a room with my bag on and everyone knows who the fuck I am. Everyone knows there's blind yeah. boy. But I can walk back into that same room with no bag on. Nobody knows who I am. And the experience of those two things is very different. And what I find is when I'm blind boy, I don't have to win anyone's approval. Everyone looks at me with this sense of their jaws are open because they're looking at the guy they've seen on TV or seen on YouTube. But when I go back into the same room and even speak to the same people, now I have to, I'm a nobody. I have to earn that person's trust through demonstrating that I'm a trustworthy, nice person. And that helps my mental health because I'm engaging with empathy. Yeah. Like, how, how do you find that with fame? Like, you're fucking Graham Norton. Well, I think that, like, uh, it's weird you say that thing. I remember, uh, and, and there's kind of nothing you can do about this, but I remember when I first got a show on uh, Channel 4 and uh, I remember going to a production meeting and I walked in, we were all sat around the, the table and I just noticed when I spoke, everyone shut up and everyone looked at yeah. me like what I was saying was important. And, and I'm aware that that probably still happens, but I no longer notice it. There you go. And, uh, but I am, so you can't continually notice that or you'd go crazy, you know, it, it, it yeah. because it just becomes the way meetings are. Um, yeah. So I suppose. I you no, know, one thing I can say to you, Graham, in your defense, and it's one of the reasons I was really, really happy to have you on this podcast I don't know if you remember, right, but about five years ago, uh, there was a party for Troika. Oh, yeah, I remember, yeah. Because we, we shared this, the same yeah. agents. And I was just there with no bag on. And I got talking to you. And me and you ended up talking about, it was about your wine. But then we ended up chatting about whatever. And th about an hour into me and you having crack, you goes, who are you, by the way? <laughs> and I'd assumed the whole time you knew I was blind by. And I was like, isn't that lovely? Graham just met this random Irish fella at the party and connected with me the whole night just because I was crack and then found out I was blind by. And I just found that really a good reflection on your character. Do you know what I mean? Well, I have to say, and I don't know whether this was intentional, but it's certainly true, that I don't know celebrities. People assume that I must kind of hang out with famous people. And, and I don't. And I think, I think partly that's to do with that I'm... The host so okay like yeah. literally 
I will, we'll, I'll have a bunch of people on the show, a couch full of people, and we'll have a great time. The show went really well. And the next day online, I'll see a picture of everyone on the couch leaving a restaurant. <laughs> They've all had dinner after the show. Oh. <laughs> and like, but you're not and, present. And, uh, not present, not invited, you know, and, and I don't care, but I just think it's interesting that, that because you're sat on that chair over there, you're like mm-hmm. some sort of comedy butler. You know, you've got you've got yeah. like your silver tray with questions on it. Um, and but the others, they feel like peers uh, on that on, the, yeah. on that couch. Um, so it's a I, th- I mean, I've talked about this before. There's an odd thing about hosting a chat show where on one level, it's very high status because your name is above the door and you walk out. And everyone's going, yay, yay, Graham. And that's you know, the big I am. But the minute mm-hmm. you have the guests out, it doesn't matter how, you know, crappy or terrible they are, you've got to be low status. You've got to be, you know, you've they've yeah. got to be oh, higher yeah, status than you. Of and course. I think a lot of people who think they're going to enjoy hosting a chat show, uh, that's where it all falls apart, where they suddenly realize... Because you have to have humility. Well, you, you, you realize it's not about you. The show, yeah, and it's kind of a, you set the tone, I suppose, but but mm-hmm. it 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 is literally not about you. It's got to be about those other people, or the whole show is kind of doomed. You're a DJ, but with the crack instead of music. A ve- that's a very good description. Yes, yeah, that's exactly what I am. <laughs> um, do you ever worry about like? So because you use the couch model and that's the, the one of the most enjoyable things about your show is you see people sitting beside each other and you never think that these people be in the same room. And that's what's so lovely about your show. Do you ever have to like beforehand go, we've two people now sitting on the fucking couch and we have informi- we've reason to believe that they don't get along with each other? I mean, sometimes you've got to kind of think, oh God, here we go. Um, like we had... Like Tom Cruise and Seth MacFarlane were on the couch at the same time. And, you know, there are some, um, there's, uh, what do we go, what's Family Guy. There are some Family Guy episodes that, you know, (laughs) if Tom's seen them, (laughs) I can't imagine he enjoyed them very much. So you, you, so, you know, that was a nervous time because, you know. Yeah that could go horribly wrong. Um, but of course, you know, as it happens, uh, kind of, I think Seth kind of apologized to Tom. I'm not sure if they did it on the show okay. or whether it was a little recording break. Was Tom aware of it? He must have been. Because the thing is with Tom Cruise, it's some, it's one thing I wonder about recently. Like, So someone was describing, it was tr- Trump's, niece who wrote a book about him recently and she's also a psychologist yeah. she said something about trump which i found fucking phenomenal which was do you know the way people try and assess trump's mental health from a distance yeah. she said when someone is that famous you you can't use the regular rules of society to assess their mental health because they're effectively institutionalized and i would put tom cruise at a level of fame where he's effectively institutionalized I mean, that, do you know yeah, what I, mean? I do. Like maybe he doesn't know about fucking, and, and also as well, have you ever met someone who's so fucking famous 
that you're just kind of taken back going, they don't live on my planet. There's something different going you on know, here. He would be in that category, definitely. That, that, yeah. And it's not about, well, I suppose it is about him, but it's about me. It's about I never get past the kind of the the line that's been drawn around him. You know, he never seems like a real is, person. Is that a physical line now? Does that mean assistance? Or are you literally going, it's Tom Cruise, it's Tom Cruise, and I can't get past the spectacle of yeah, Tom it's Cruise? That. You can't get past it. You you never forget. Most people who come on the show, no matter how famous they are, you know, after a little bit of, you know, oh my God, uh, yeah. they become a person. You know, and, and mm-hmm. they either become a dull person or an interesting person or a funny person or a dick or whatever they become. But they they morph into a human being. He yeah. remains Tom Cruise. And my God, he's good at it. Like, he's so yeah. good at it. And, and it's, so it's, and also I feel like it's his choice. He decided yeah. to do that. And I hope it's worth it. I hope for him the rewards are worth it because you're right it, what he's done to his life is kind of extraordinary that like he will he'll he won't experience things in the way that the rest of us experience things he yeah. won't know stuff in the way that the rest of us know stuff maybe he remembers you know maybe he could think back yeah. to to when he was a a boy and and when this was his dream uh you know it's it's that uh Bob Dylan, Bob Dylan said something once which was just jarring and kind of depressing. So Bob Dylan is also at that level of fame. And Bob Dylan was saying that when he goes to a restaurant, even a famous person restaurant, everybody changes how they eat when Bob Dylan walks into the room, including someone like uh, Robert De Niro or Bruce Springsteen, because it's Bob fucking Dylan. So Bob Dylan doesn't get to be a normal person even around other famous people. And Tom Cruise is also that. Yeah, he would be, definitely. Um, I mean, that's... And I think personality types like, I mean, OK, so the reason I, I wear a fucking bag is I, I couldn't handle any notoriety that doesn't suit my personality. I've got a history of anxiety, agoraphobia. I like being an artist. I don't like being recognized or well known. But I think some people do have the type of personality where being completely recognized and everyone knowing who you are. That suits who they are and that works for them. But does it, though? Because I think what's incredible that you had the foresight to know. It was season one of Big Brother. I first started doing rubber banded stuff in season one of Big Brother and I watched uh, the, the guy who won it was called Craig yeah. and I, I watched how he became the most famous person in Britain and Ireland and then after two months he wasn't and then after six months he was like working in B&Q but people were still coming up to him and I remember thinking Jesus Christ famous so disposable right now imagine being really famous but you don't get to live that life or have the trappings of it so you're essentially just being a regular person but being bothered all the time but, and it scared the fuck out of me don't you wonder why is it that because those big brother people back in you know season one season two big brother they were more famous than god i mean they were so famous yeah Mad. and yes the the kind of the bad things that have happened after love island you know people's mon- mental health mm-hmm. now seems to be worse or or fame seems to social media is man. that all it is is it just is it just the people well, are sitting on twitter scrolling through vile stuff about themselves the like the, the only people who were absolute pricks back then were the newspapers the newspapers were horrible yeah. like the treatment that jade goody and got. then you could but you but could throw like, it away you can throw it away or or you can say to yourself it's a journalist's job to be a prick 
but with social media and it's real people and man people are fucked up on the internet you know people really there there's some people who really try and hurt people with words really really have a good think about hurting people with words and you said a brilliant thing about that about you look at the little avatar and you see that it's a man and he's got a, he's holding his granddaughter or something and a rubbing a dog uh, yeah and, and yeah. you got to think like they're not that they are like they they have they have goodness in them yeah and I try and latch on to that. When, when I see like an old man rubbing his dog and he's on the Daily Mail comments calling for, for the death of refugees, you know, it does jar me because I'm going, you have enough compassion to put your dog into a photograph. You have enough compassion to tell your granddaughter you love her. What's going on here? Yeah, I mean, I, you know, yeah. in, this, in this moment of hatred that you have right I now. I find that fascinating, The that weird thing where it it's like road rage, I think. It's like, you know, Oh, very similar. Where yeah. You call everyone every name under the sun when you're driving, um, but like if you if your win even if your window was down, you wouldn't do it <laughs> because you'd yeah. be. Fit. Or something as simple, Graham, as as you could be in traffic and you'll pick your nose if you're in the car, yeah. but you will not pick your nose walking down the street. The car gives you this sense of uh, this illusion of privacy yeah. that I think social media does the same thing. Yeah, but you think you're not vulnerable. You think you're, yeah. I'm, I'm protected here because I'm in this, in this car of Twitter, <laughs> my Twitter mobile. Yeah. Uh, yeah, but it, yeah, I, it, it's, I do think it's, and, and it's a bit like, cause I didn't learn how to drive till I was in my late thirties. And yeah. the minute I got in the car, I was furious with everybody. <laughs> and, and I got, where was this anger? Like, what the fuck is what that? Yeah. The, what was my vent? What was my outlet for this anger before I drove? And it's a bit like that with, with Twitter. <laughs> where you kind of think before these people had a Twitter thing, they weren't out in their garden screaming at neighbours. They weren't, you know, in the supermarket no. just throwing packets on the floor going, I hate this, I hate it. Um, or calling for genocide. Yeah, <laughs> that too. <laughs> and you're like, how did it... Like it's weird that like that it, it that that anger is in us. It just needs an outlet, and and but yet if you're not given the outlet, you seem to be fine. Like I didn't feel I wasn't walking around like a pressure cooker before I had a car. Yeah. But the minute I had a car, uh, Mister Angry. And were you shocking yourself, going? I didn't know I could get this angry. Why am I beeping this horn? Why am I screaming? I did, I, I'm very. I don't beep the horn. I'm. <laughs> I'm not that angry. Okay. <laughs> I probably am, but I'm not. Was it a, si a silent car a rage? A very silent car rage. But no, no it'd be, I would be verbal. I would be like screaming inside the car. Yeah. Um, I've got better. I have calmed down. Uh, and also because I think uh, London traffic moves so slowly now. There's no sense. Like, nothing's holding you up. Yeah. Because it just, it all just crawls along. So you just have to give it up. Um, I'd love to talk a bit about your writing process, right? Um, Like you've written three novels since 20, I'm guessing 2015, you started the first one. Like that's a, a pretty large output in five years. H how do you find the time? What, what is, what's your, your routine for writing your, your books? Um, I do. I mean, with me, I, I basically, I like, I want to write, you know, it's not like, it's yeah. not like homework. It's not like, oh, geez, I'm going to do that. It's the thing I look forward to. I like getting lost in, in those worlds and those characters and the story. Oh, I like all of that. Yeah. So if I've got time in my diary, I kind of say, oh, that could be, those are book days. Let's do that. And, and I look forward to those days because I'm sure 
what does writing feel like for you? Do, do you ever feel, do you feel like you're kind of watching a film in your head and, and your story is revealing itself to you? Or is it, are you thinking more about what's going to happen? It's a bit of both. You know, on a good day, it's like watching a film and you go, oh my God, mm-hmm. I had no idea that was going to happen. And like, you know, when I interview yeah. writers and they talk about, oh, the characters have got a life of their own, you just roll your eyes and go, for fuck's sake. But, um, Until you but do it. then it happens, then you're in it. And now I'm that, I'm that pretentious prick <laughs> talking, talking yeah. about then my characters. Blah, blah, blah. Uh, I realized my character couldn't do that. And, you know, what are you talking about? But it is, it is true. And those are the good days. Those are the days when you're like, oh, I love this. And then there's other days when it is heavy lifting and you kind of think, oh, how am I going to get them to hear? Or how can, you know, I solve this problem? Because you have deadlines. <laughs> You've got deadlines. You've got a publisher saying, Graham, this book is coming out next year and we need it finished. So how do you tackle but that? That's, but that's when, the gift. Do you put a word count? Uh, you've got a word count and... At, What's your daily word count? Oh, no, I don't have, have a daily list? word count. I just have an overall okay. word count. The overall, it's about okay. 100,000. Um, and uh, so the deadline is great. The deadline is the reason that I think any book is finished. I mean, I'm so in awe yeah. of, uh, you know, writers who write novels on spec and then send them off to agents and publishers. Yeah. Like the idea of typing the end when no one was waiting for you to do it. Because yeah. I think there's always something, I mean, maybe it's different with short stories, but with a novel, there's a bit about two thirds the way through and I've talked to other writers and they all go, yep, yeah, that's right. And about two thirds of the way through where you just kind of think, no one will be interested in this story. No one wants to meet these characters. Mm-hmm. Why am I continuing? And that would be the point where most novels end up in a drawer or on a memory stick. But because, yeah. as you say, publishers are going, uh, where's that novel? You you have yeah. to push through that big wall of self-doubt and get to the end. Um Do you have support from your editors with that? Like when you get to that point, do you ring up your editor and go, look, I don't give a fuck about these characters and I can't see why anyone else will. Um, I mean, what are those conversations? I don't have those conversations uh, because the whole point of these books is I don't have any conversations. The books, I mean, I do in the end. In the end, yeah, once yeah. it's finished, then I've talked to editors and da 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 Is it very private it's for yourself, compl- it's, the process? It's, it, it's private, but private makes it sound like it's secretive. It's not secretive. It's just completely personal. It's the only thing in my life where where I'm calling all the shots it's just about it's just about my imagination whereas you know most things I do there's either a meeting about the show or but or mm-hmm. you're having to deal with someone else or they're saying oh we can't play that music or you know the guest doesn't want to talk about this or you know there's always something else to consider and mm-hmm. with the books there isn't. Or if it is, it's something I've put in. I, it's a break I've put in place myself. It's not, it, it's a self-imposed thing. Not. It doesn't come from external forces. Um, do you feel that you, what, what's your relationship with your Irish identity? Because that was another real common question that was asked. Like, I do find that Irish people were very, I, I, not claiming, but I mean like, Sometimes people look at Irish people who go to the UK and do TV as if it's a soccer team and as if going to the UK is some type of betrayal or something like that. You know, how do you feel about 
your Irishness and your Irish identity, is, is it important to you? Is, is it part of who you are? Well, it has to be part of who you are. And that's part of the, like, one of the, this latest book, Home Stretch. that's kind of one of the themes of that book is, you know, I, I've been, I've talked about this before when, you know, I didn't leave Ireland. I ran away. I couldn't wait to get out mm-hmm. of the place. Uh, that was me done. And, and home stretch is a, it's about a woman who's in New York. Uh, she finds out that her mother dies. No, no and then that's, she has to uh, that's the last one. That's a keeper. Um, home okay. stretch is about if there's a crash, uh, three kids die, oh, three yeah. live, and it's about the kind of following the life of the driver of the car. Um, but but I remember, you know, when you when you leave Ireland and you think right, that's it, you know, done. Mm-hmm. And you you come to England, and you you know you don't go anywhere near Kilburn, and you kind of think I, I've grown up with you know four million of them. I don't need Irish people in yeah. my life. Da, 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 da. And you're making new friends. You've got a career, and all's fabulous. It's great, 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 great. And then you're at a party, and you bump into an Irish person you've never met them before. You don't know them, mm-hmm. and you get talking to them, and. It's that, and when you're young, this is depressing. Now I find it lovely. But when you're young, it's depressing. Mm-hmm. You're talking to this Irish person and you realise, oh God, I already know this guy better than <laughs> I will ever know anyone I meet in the UK. Yeah. Because they watched Wanderly Wagon and they know who yeah. Mike Murphy is. And you yeah. just have this shared history, these weird bonds and as i say when you're a kid i think that's depressing now in my 50s i love that i love that mm-hmm. i have a bond with this place that when i go back to ireland you know i haven't lived in ireland uh, full time since 1983 mm-hmm. so i've been out of the place far longer than i was ever there but when yeah. i go back like i just i i you know you have to say i i know ireland better than I will ever know the UK. Like, I wouldn't have the confidence to to write a book set in Britain. Like, I don't know mm-hmm. what the inside of people's houses look like. I don't know what their conversations mm-hmm. are. But I don't know what English people talk to each other about. <laughs> uh, yeah. So, and I don't know what their conversation sounds like. Um, you know, and I read books and everything. Yeah, the intimate, private... Yeah, I wouldn't have a fucking no. clue either. What the fuck do English people talk about when they're eating the roast beef, you yeah. know? I don't know. So, I, so, and it's weird because I should know. I mean, that's stupid that I don't yeah. know. I've been here for so long. But I don't. I don't. Now, having said that, um, I do feel at home here. You know, like, when I get on the plane to go to yeah. Cork, I'm going home. When I get on the plane in Cork to come to London, I'm coming home. Uh, you know, I, yeah. I pay tax here. I vote here. My career's here. It'd be mad if I didn't feel some sort of sense of identity with, with certainly with London. Um, that'd yeah. be crazy if I still felt like an outsider. I don't feel like an outsider. Um, but equally, I, th- I think London is a, is a kind of a separate thing, isn't it? Because... You yeah, know, it is, yeah. Who knows Londoners? I don't know any Londoners. I mean, every, yeah. you know, all my neighbours are from somewhere else. Yeah. Yeah. Um, you're pretty serious about your wine as well. Um, I mean, I love it. And also, I think if you're going to put your name... Yeah, that one other question. Do you get drunk on your own uh, wine? Yes. I mean, I get drunk a lot less than I used to, I have to say. Um, and okay. I don't like talking about it because I don't... Because I feel like I'm... You know, because if you say, oh, I've cut down my drinking, it's like I'm judging the person yeah. I used to be. And uh, no, I'm not. It's not that. I don't know what. I, it's, I, just, you just get older and 
you know, sort of. I, Hangovers get worse, well, man. It's not so much that. I remember when I was I was writing um, a, a sort of a memoiry thing, and it was called "The Life and Loves of He Devil," and I and I mm-hmm. chapters of all all things I loved, and I wrote one chapter on drink. Mm-hmm. And I thought, oh, that'll be good. I'll put all my funny stories about being drunk in one chapter. Yeah. Mm-hmm. If you put all your funny stories about being drunk in one chapter, it really stops being funny. It just becomes sort of tragic by the end. You know, and things like, I remember I was in a bar in, in Shoreditch and it was this tequila bar. And we all do shots and da, da, da. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I left. And I was going home. And... Anyway, about, I don't know how long, longer, maybe 45 minutes later, uh, my friends found me asleep, uh, leaning against a lamppost. Oh, my God. This was only about five or six years ago. And and you got to think, now that is cute when you're 22. <laughs> if you're 50, <laughs> that's fucking awful. It's the front page of the Daily yeah, Mail. Like you well. can't be asleep against a lamppost when you're 50. So uh, I just thought, <laughs> I, I, yeah, I, I, this doesn't suit me anymore. Yeah, I yeah, think yeah. That's what it is. Um, and also, I don't want to. It's that weird balance of control in your life, isn't it? So I don't want to say I'm giving up drinking because then I've given yeah. power to the drink. But equally, yeah. I'm I'm telling the drink. <laughs> I can I can not have you. I don't have to have you. So it's a, it's a weird yeah. it's a weird kind of power balance between me and alcohol and trying to kind of assert my control while still enjoying it. And what one last question for you Zor Graham, right? With, with your books when you're writing, do you ever feel that like how much self-discovery, how much like almost therapeutic going into yourself, going into your your childhood, your early memories. Do you ever find that about your writing process? I mean, what's interesting about it is that it all comes out of you. You know, like, you must find this where, you know, you're writing something and no matter how odd or extraordinary it is, it's it's in you. You haven't, you haven't mm-hmm. plucked it out of the air. You're not channeling it from somewhere. It's stuff that's in your brain. And I yeah. think what surprises me is sometimes the the empathy you can have or how the facility you have to put yourself in situations you thought yeah. you knew nothing about and suddenly you kind of think oh actually weirdly obviously i have experienced that or can or i can imagine it really vividly and those are the kind of the the surprises i suppose um and also I, the, the overall surprise is, I think, that these books that I've written, these novels, are much more uh, sentimental and kinder than I ever thought I would be as a fiction writer. I I imagined mm-hmm. my books would be quite snarky and cruel and a bit world-weary mm-hmm. and jaded. And actually, turns out, that's not who I am when, when I write novels that's not where my mind goes to in fiction um i'm i'm sort of an old softy really does that make you feel good about who you are now your sense of because one thing i noticed earlier when we were speaking about you know when you're younger and you meet irish people you have this sense of resistance which to me that what stuck out there it's, it's like when a teenager 
is exploring all these different types of music or types of dressing as a way to find out who they are. But now as you're older, you don't find resistance to meeting Irish people. You find it kind of warm. Like when you're speaking about there, are you comfortable now with a sense of identity as this saying to yourself, fuck it. I'm actually quite kind and empathic and my stories are telling me this. Um, is is that a comfortable yeah, sentence? No, it is a comfortable sentence. And I feel, you know, as you get older, God, you better, you better get comfortable in your skin. You've so much of it. Yeah. Um, so yeah. <laughs> you, you, you want to relax into yourself um, and you want to have a sense of who you are. Because um, I think, yeah, if you're still, if you're still struggling in your kind of late 50s to kind of, find yourself or to like yourself or accept yourself mm-hmm. you, you know you know i said earlier we've got more time than we think but at the same time at, at you know there comes a point when y- you need to kind of be in your groove i think or accept yeah accepting this is who the fuck also i am accepting what you're what you're good at what you're not good at what you're never going to do you know i'm all for mm-hmm. follow your dream follow your dream follow your dream there comes a point when you've got to give up on your dream. There comes a point when you're kind of like, mm-hmm. that's not going to happen anymore. And the process, the grief around that, people don't, we speak about grief in terms of the death of people, but quite a few people experience grief around the death of dreams. Absolutely. Um, and a bit like every sort of grief, you know, you there is a process to get through it. You know, you, there are all the, you know, all those things ending in acceptance. Um, and that's where you've, you've got to get to. Um, otherwise, you know, you're that person that you meet who's, you know, still working on a demo or still having yeah. meetings about something or other. And, you know, we all, we've all known those people. And you think, oh, mm-hmm. God, you know. I suppose if it still drives them, I suppose if they're still if they're still moving forward and it still gives them, it feeds them in some way. It's it's the relationship they have with it, Graham. I, what what I, what I always think of there is, I remember it was like I was seeing it was fucking Dragon's Den or something like that, and it was a dude who he had an idea. He'd invented a new type of sport like thirty that's years big. ago. That's big. That's that's very inventing big. Inventing a new sport. Was, that's ambitious. He was he was living out of his car. Because he was so sure that this sport was going to, and it was 30 years into it and he was living out of his car, he'd sold his house and it's like, look, I've got this new fucking sport and I think it could be in the Olympics. And it's, it's, it's when it's that, it's his relationship with his dream is now unhealthy. Yes. It's, it's not like I've got this sport and I think about it in my spare time, but it's not impacting my fucking quality of life or my family. But it's like now your relationship with your dream is, is fucking up the quality of your life. That's where it's a problem. And I think it's people got sold a lie somewhere along the way. I think when I was... A, the Yanks started that. The yeah, Yanks, I guess they did. I'm, the, Yanks well, started, look, the Yanks are the pe- people who told me to follow my dream. And I and I did. And But my dream then morphed into something else. You were right. You were you followed it in the right direction. But what about people? I think it comes from, if you look at the history of America and frontierism, it's just like they took this country and it's massive... And we're told, just go forth and take whatever the fuck is there. And there's gold in them there hills and keep going. And that now manifests itself in the American psyche. But it's like, yes, but you need to have limitations too. You need to self-reflect. Is this dream, if you're too deep into it and it's impacting your life and you're living in your car because it's a fucking sport, you got to go, maybe this is the wrong dream. Maybe there's a mirage. I'm not a parent, but I always kind of think if I was a parent, 
don't put all the drawings on the fridge. Like some of the drawings, okay, some of the drawings yeah. must be better than others. And and yeah. more work went into some of the drawings than others. And like, I think people should recognize, um, you know, that hard work is in, is required. It's not, you know, every, you know, it's that thing, your little princess or little prince. And da, da, it's like that can't be that healthy in the end because yeah, your expectations need to be managed in some way. And yet at the same time, mm-hmm. you don't want to crush people. There must be some weird, yeah. there there must be some happy medium um, where <laughs> where people kind of, you know, they they can dream, but at the same time, they, they understand that there are kind of practical things in life that you have to address. For me, I, I've always viewed what I do as a hobby. I've always viewed it as a hobby. And, and the bag also was part of that. Another reason for my bag was like, because I went back and did a master's five years ago. I'm always have my in my awareness. Fuck it. What if I what if if this doesn't work out and I have to get a different job? Well, that'll be quite easy now because I have a bag on my head and no one know who the fuck I when am. When you did your master's, was there like a kind of did you come out? Where did you meet new people and then when you got to know them well enough, you'd go, actually, actually I'm yeah. a blind boy. And Yeah. So when I was in my class, uh it was a small class of about twelve people. After a few weeks, I just kind of said, Look, this is my art, this is what I do. I'm doing my master's around this um, and I'm going to ask you to respect the situation. But once they'd gotten to know me, they didn't give a fuck that my other life meant I had a fucking bag in my head. So So I'd got, I'd established trust first. But uh, so it never got out. You never got, you, it wasn't. No. That's really impressive because you would tell people, you would kind of go, you'll never guess who's in my class. I'm supposed, I'd say they did a little bit, but they'd have never like asked for a photo. People never come in and said, they did at the end, at the very end when I finished my master's, certain people said, look, my brother's a massive fan. All right. I didn't tell him, but we're coming near the end. Will you sign this for him? Will you do that? But people generally, they're really respectful of it because they understand my reasons behind it, you know, and you just put in the work to show them that you're a person who's worth trusting. And do you think you'd ever have another life where um, where you were something else as well and maybe that yeah. person did have a face not not publicly right but but like i i trained to be a psychotherapist uh years ago and i i quit because of horse outside and i would like to think maybe if i give up this that i'd go back as a psychotherapist not in the public eye but just someone who helps people through therapy yeah. you know i do get asked a lot by my, by agents and all that shit will you just take off the fucking bag and then we can sell you in the UK for fuck's sake but I'm like no thanks it doesn't suit me I think it's brilliant that you know that because the yeah. thing about you know having your I think people think they want to be well known you know you know all those yeah. kids who go on Love Island and all those things they think they're going to enjoy it and and it like you need to be uh, you need to gird your loins for it, particularly now, as you were saying, you know, that whole social media mm-hmm. thing, like it's not going to be as fun as you think it's going to be. It, there are perks, there are nice bits, but, yeah. and, but, and also it's that thing that you can't turn it on and turn it off. That's what's brilliant about you. Can. you. You've got a I tap, can. you've got a tap yeah. and you pop that bag on and look at me, the big I am, and it's wonderful. Um, but then you can just go to the shops. It's, yeah. 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 And I can, as you were saying earlier, I can get drunk and fall asleep <laughs> against the lamppost. You're young enough. 
I'm young enough, but still, like, I, I can do that with my friends, you know, and I don't have to worry about... I mean, the fact of the matter is, you went out, you had a good night, you got drunk, you fell asleep against a lamppost. Yeah. How easy is that to frame in the paper that you are now, your life is falling apart and you're destitute? Oh, very easy. I mean... Yeah. There you go. And And how many times have I seen people in the newspaper who... I don't know, they were they were at a house party the night before, they had a hangover, famous people, and all of a sudden, the newspaper is like, this person's life is in ruins. And it might not be true. Maybe they just had but a But I find there's a very odd thing with newspapers where I know that everything I read about myself in a newspaper isn't true. Or at least it's yeah. off. It's skewed wrong, or it's they put a spin on it that isn't correct. And I will read the thing about myself, and I'll go, rubbish. And I will literally turn the page and read a story about someone else and go, oh, well, I didn't know that. Oh, poor them. That's terrible. <laughs> and it's, oh, it's so weird that you can't, you, I cannot make yeah. that connection. Yeah. Fucking hell. Um, that's 90 minutes there, Graham, right? So I just want to say, look, thank you so much for, for doing this. I really appreciate it. And not just for doing the interview. I'm six months in fucking lockdown, so I don't get the opportunity to speak to people. So, it was just a lovely conversation as well. So thank you well, for listen, that. Well, listen, really, really nice to talk to you. And I, I, I'm i not just saying this. I am such a big fan of your podcast. It's, it really is one of thank the best so much, ones Graham. out there. You, you've got just a brilliant, so brilliant much. mind. Um, you're fantastic. What an absolute gent. What uh, a lovely cathartic chat that was. It was, like I said there at the end, it didn't feel like an interview. It felt like being on the phone. Felt like being on the phone and having a lovely, a lovely conversation and a chat with someone who I had st- stuff in common with, you know. Um, and I loved doing that. It, it was, it was just nice. Uh, the rest of my day after that, because I'm kind of locked up with quarantine, you know, I miss human connection. And and when I did that chat with Graham, I was on cloud nine for the rest of the day. I was buzzing. I had endorphins, you know. I'd made a human connection. I'd engage with empathy. So thank you to Graham for that, for just for doing that. It was fantastic. I'll catch you next week. Don't know what next week's podcast is going to be about. Probably a hot take. We'll see what the crack is. All right. Um, if you're a new listener, thank you for sticking around. Listen to some old podcasts. Subscribe to the podcast. Like it. Fucking follow it on Spotify. Whatever. Share it, man. Share it with a friend. Especially if you're not living in Ireland. If you're in America or Australia or Britain, if you like my podcast, show it to a friend and get him to listen. That stuff really, really helps. Okay, yart. Hold up. What was that? 
boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.